Hello, this is Danielle Fisher. Welcome to Melanoma Insights for Professionals, brought to you by Melanoma Institute Australia. Today we're talking about in-transit melanoma, a distinctive form of tumour recurrence. It can be very distressing to patients, often requiring multiple treatments, procedures and hospitalisations. Management of this disease can be challenging and frustrating to clinicians as well. And so we have brought together a panel of multidisciplinary experts to discuss in-transit melanoma and learn from the rationale behind their management decisions. Facilitating the discussion today is Associate Professor Matteo Carlino. Matt is a medical oncologist at MIA and Westmead and Blacktown Hospitals. He's also an Associate Professor of the University of Sydney. We also have Associate Professor Robin Saw joining us. Robin is a general surgeon at MIA and head of the Department of Melanoma and Surgical Oncology at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Professor Diona Damien is also joining us for the discussion. Diona is a professor of dermatology at the University of Sydney, clinical academic at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and an associate of MIA. Welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. Robin, perhaps you could start us off by telling us how do we define in-transit metastases and how common are they? So we define in-transit metastases as metastases of melanoma that are clinically evident and usually between the primary melanoma site and the first L echelon of nodal field. So the thing is um, with in-transit metastases, they can be defined as strictly as that, but some do present distal to the primary melanoma site. They happen in, on average, 4% of melanoma patients. Um, the thicker the melanoma, the more likely they are to have uh, in-transit metastases, so up to about 11%, 12% in thick uh, primary melanomas. And they can present like a rash in the skin to really uh, thick uh, subcutaneous lesions. So very, very, varied presentation um, of in-transit metastases. And of course, they present uh, not only as solely in-transit metastases, but also with nodal disease. And sometimes uh, they're the first uh, marker of widespread metastatic disease. Talk me through, I guess, how can these things present? Uh, do the patients usually raise them? Are you picking them up on scans? And um, perhaps just describe some of the variety of the different presentations you can see. So um, as Robin says, these in-transit metastases can present with a really, really broad variety of morphologies. I guess they're probably more commonly detected by the patient or by the clinician. Oftentimes, they may be too small to be detected in scans, and we often get an opportunity to detect them when they're quite little. They can range from really thin macular epidermotropic metastases to papules or subcutaneous nodules, combinations of all of the above. Um, sometimes we can see sheet-like plaques of disease in the skin. They can be pigmented, but they don't have to be pigmented. They can be non-pigmented flesh-coloured or pink lesions. And keep in mind that you don't have to have had a definite primary melanoma to get in transit metastases. Some of them we see may have an unknown primary. So you may find them not only in your patients with a track record of previous invasive melanoma. They can be clustered in one area uh, in the in-transit range, or sometimes they can be quite broadly scattered. We can see in-transit metastases that may be virtually circumferential around a limb, for example. 
it's very important in these patients to do a really thorough top-to-toe skin examination because we're looking closely not just for the in-transit metastases, but we want to make sure that there aren't any actual distant cutaneous metastases on the skin. And of course, we're always alert to the possibility of additional new primaries. Robin, you see someone who's got an in-transit metastasis. How do you work them up? Do they need a biopsy? And what other tests do you do? Well, I guess you first, you have a clinical suspicion that something is an in-transit metastasis, but you have to prove it. So usually you would want to uh, do an excision biopsy or a a punch biopsy to prove that that thing is actually an in-transit metastasis. And as Diana said, there may be multiple. So I guess you you would want to know, I guess, just biopsy one and also a clinical examination of the regional node site as well at that first, I guess, diagnostic examination. But once you've actually proven that someone has an in-transit metastasis, you do need to stage them um, because, as I previously mentioned, it may be the harbinger of um, stage four disease, so widespread metastatic disease. So once you you've staged them and it's usually with a PET scan and also a a brain scan, uh, either a CT or MRI, then you would work out exactly how to treat these patients. Keeping in mind that if they just have in-transit disease, they are stage three on the current AJCC um, staging criteria and uh, they're designated C um, in the nodal uh, subgroup of um, the AJCC staging. And so I might follow up with, we talked about the imaging, you mentioned a PET scan. Mm. Um, Just to get your view on PET versus CT, uh, particularly for this group of patients, and any role for ultrasound in these patients? So my preference is really for PET. Um, I think it's the ideal uh, scan for melanoma. Most uh, melanoma metastases would show up on a PET scan. And also a PET scan, particularly if the primary site is on a limb or the head and neck, um, it will actually cover uh, that site. Of course, the problem with PET and with uh, most imaging is that the lesions have to be at least uh, three to four millimetres in size before it's seen. Um, So there is a resolution problem with all scans. And that's why the clinical examination that Diona mentioned, careful clinical examination is very important as well, because a crop of very subtle uh, lesions on the skin is not going to show up on a PET scan. Diona, do you see when or when or would you not at all use ultrasound in these people? We do sometimes use ultrasound, apart from in the nodal context, we sometimes use it for more subcutaneous metastases, particularly if we're looking for treatment response or rate of growth or if there's something that's a bit indeterminate that's difficult to quantitate clinically and you want a more objective measure of it with ultrasound. So we do use ultrasound for the cutaneous metastases, the subcutaneous metastases in a minority of patients. Mm. More as follow-up, actually, Matt. Um, So if you've diagnosed a patient and, for example, you've excised a single in-transit metastasis and uh, then you you want to follow up the patients and ensure that they haven't developed a further metastasis, in-transit metastasis, then ultrasound may have a role there as well. 
And I must admit, for me, one of the reasons where I really do prefer PET over CT, along with bowel metastasis, I think that's the group of patients where they're much better served by PET than CT. So anyone I've followed up who's had it in transit, I preferentially would do a PET. Robin, you described nicely that these patients are defined as stage three, assuming they don't have distant disease. Talk us through this idea of resectable stage three and unresectable stage three and and particularly how that applies to this group of patients. So I guess we're talking about uh, treatment options for patients with intransit metastases and they're multiple and varied and deciding exactly how to treat them I think is particularly vexed because they present sometimes just as a single isolated intransit metastases or a crop of three or four that are easily resectable, then we can actually just excise them simply. And uh, we've actually just uh, done a paper that shows that 30% of these patients actually don't have further disease. They can be monitored and just uh, have no further any uh, metastases of melanoma. But, of course, there's the other 60% or 70% who will actually develop further intransit metastases, nodal disease, or even uh, widespread metastatic disease. So, Robin, we've talked about the heterogeneity of this this patient population, but could you just uh, talk us through the local therapy options for a patient presenting with intransit metastases? There are a number of local options and uh, first and foremost simplest is, of course, surgical resection. And then there's the option of diphencyprone, which is a cream which is Diona's specialty. Radiotherapy also can occasionally be used, injectable agents. And then from there, we step up to isolated limb infusion if the disease is on a limb and even amputation. It is actually a bit tricky to work out exactly what to treat uh, in transit disease. The simple stuff, like one or two in transit metastases that you resect, easily uh, treatable, but it gets more complex the more uh, nodules there are. And I guess with the resectable in transit disease, because it is classified as stage three already, you can use the addition of um, drug therapy adjuvantly to prevent other disease from coming up. And then systemic therapy up front, if I guess it's not simple and and, um, not surgically resectable. And Diona, we're going to come back to systemic therapy uh, options, both adjuvantly and in the unresectable setting. But just talking about the actual local therapy, How do you decide between an injectable or diphencyprone or other local therapies? What's your thought processes around that? And often it's a decision not just between the local therapies, but between local and systemic. And for the topical immunotherapy in particular, the diphencyprone, it's it's often a, a treatment of exclusion. So if someone's not suitable for systemic therapy or they failed systemic therapy, they're not suitable for surgical excision or they failed surgical excision, there are too many lesions, then topical immunotherapy can be considered. This is using a chemical called diphencyprone, which is simply a synthetic type of poison ivy. It's a contact sensitizer which deliberately elicits a dermatitis on any skin that the chemical is applied to. So the idea is that patients apply it once a week at home on the area of skin that contains the in-transit metastases 
This causes an immune response in that patch of skin, which causes inflammation, but hopefully also causes immune-mediated regression in the melanoma. And this can be quite effective. The thinner the disease, the higher the chances of success, because this is a topical therapy. Overall, in patients who have not failed systemic therapy, so a, a non-selected, non-refractory group of patients, there's about 50% of people who get complete cutaneous clearance of their in-transit metastases with diphencyprone. Another third have a partial response and 12 to 15%, it just doesn't work at all. The thinner the lesions, the greater the chance of success, although sometimes in patients who don't have other options or have failed other options or don't want other options, we'll still have a go at diphencyprone even for thicker lesions. Selection of patients, we're really looking at the risk-benefit ratio. Thin disease on a forgiving area of the body, so anything other than the lower leaks, it's often worth considering diphencyprone. If we have frail elderly patients who've probably already got some stasis changes and dermatitis on the lower legs or they've had lymphedema on the lower legs, then it becomes more difficult, not impossible, but more difficult to comfortably and safely manage a prolonged dermatitis in that area of the body. And quite often Diona and I actually see these patients together. So they may present to me initially, but uh, then I drag Diona into the consultation and offer her the patient and say, what do you think? Do you think you can use diphencyprone for this patient? But realising that, uh, the, as Diona said, the thinner lesions is what diphencyprone will treat. Um, but if there's a combination of this uh, sort of a thin stuff and also some bulky nodules, I may actually excise the bulky nodules, particularly if they're bleeding, and then give uh, Diona an opportunity to, to use the diphencyprone and see the effect of it. Really, it's mixing treatments to actually hopefully get a good outcome. And, and oftentimes, a patient who's receiving diphencyprone may have a beautiful response in all but one stubborn lesion. And so I drag Robin in and Robin will very kindly excise the one resistant lesion in order to achieve tumour clearance. I mean, in terms of injectable treatment, we tend to offer that really to patients who have failed or are unsuitable for either the surgery or the diphencyprone, things that are bulkier, more resistant, not suitable for either of those two therapies. And I guess talking about the injectables, um, our range of injectable agents is actually very limited in Australia. We know that PV10 or Rosebengal uh, works pretty well and TVEC as well um, with some what we call bystander effects. So the lesions that are not injected also respond. We're accessing IL-2 uh, at the moment because we can't physically get uh, PV-10 or TVEC um, in the country currently. And uh, IL-2 seems to work in the lesions that are injectable, injected, uh, but not have a bystander effect. So really the injectable arena for treatment of in-transit disease is very limited currently. And for our listeners, I might just talk them through some of the limitations with TVEC, unfortunately, in Australia. TVEC is uh, an injectable immunotherapy that's uh, a genetically modified uh, herpes virus. 
it's actually got a randomised trial showing a, a survival advantage in appropriately selected patients. It appears to be quite readily used, particularly in the US, but as Robin mentioned, really uh, almost impossible to access in Australia, which means if you are looking at you know, uh, some guidelines or publications from the uh, US particularly, you may see the use of an injectable such as TVEC more prominent, uh, and the access for Australia has been really quite difficult and challenging for patients. I might move on and talk a little bit about systemic therapy for these patients, if I may, and then we'll loop back and put these things all together. So like in most areas of melanoma, both the targeted therapies with BRAF and MEK inhibitors and immunotherapy, particularly the anti-PD-1 agents, have led to significant changes. Uh, that decision about a resectable versus unresectable in transit metastasis also is critical to decisions about the drug therapy. So in one extreme, we've got the patient who has been resected, who sees Robin, gets resected, and then gets referred to a medical oncologist with resected stage three disease. And like any patient with resected stage three disease, that patient has a risk of a recurrence. That recurrence can be local, more in transits, or distant with distant disease. And those patients have the option of accessing adjuvant therapy, be that an anti-PD-1 agent or if they're BRAF mutant targeted therapy. And uh, you're welcome to listen some, to some of our other podcasts on adjuvant therapy options for resectable stage three disease. The other group of patients are the patients where the dermatologist and the surgeon who have defined this person as unresectable, either unresectable because clearly you can't resect 30, 40, 50 lesions, or technically unresectable because the morbidity of the procedure means that we as a multidisciplinary team feel the patient's better served by systemic therapy or unresectable because the patient feels that further surgery uh, is not in their best interest. These patients need to be discussed as a multidisciplinary team, but with the advent of effective systemic therapy, often the management of these patients have changed where the systemic therapy is used ahead of local therapies such as diphencyprone and definitely ahead of things like a limb infusion. There's been no prospective trials of just unresectable stage three disease. And these patients often form a small part of the broader registrational studies of all our drugs. But all the data we've seen and the data which is slowly getting collated retrospectively suggests that the systemic therapy we use for stage four disease is also active in these patients. And so that means these patients are eligible for treatment for targeted therapy if they're BRAF mutant, and they're also eligible for treatment with immunotherapy irrespective of their BRAF mutation status. And the decisions we make as medical oncologists about using single-agent anti-PD-1 or combination immunotherapy also apply to these patients. And once again, for listeners that want to hear more of the nuance about those clinical decision makings about which drug to use and the toxicities of those drugs, uh, I direct them to our, our podcast on uh, stage four disease and unresectable disease. But the advent of these drugs really has, in my mind, sitting in our MDTs, led to a new group of patients. That's the patient who has in-transit disease, but has progressed on our standard systemic therapies, particularly the patients who have in-transits that have either developed or progressed on uh, immunotherapy. This is a new, new clinical problem that's really developed in the last four or five years. And, and it's the area, I think, where local therapy is most important and perhaps one of the most challenging groups of treatment. So 
in someone who's failed immunotherapy, uh, does that change your thought process? Does it, uh, does it alter the clinical situation? I guess um, leaping in and talking about the role of diphencyprene in those patients who've tried and failed systemic therapy, um, we don't have huge numbers, but there is a steady trickle of patients coming to us who are in that position. And diphencyprene can be used in combination with a systemic therapy or after the systemic therapy in that group of patients, as I say, there are small numbers, but the success rate seems to be roughly half of what we see in the previously untreated patients. So maybe 25% complete clearance and half of that, again, partial response and a bigger proportion of non-responders in patients whose disease is already immune refractory or immune resistant but there is still a role for trying it. And in some patients where systemic treatment alone hasn't worked or when diphencyprone alone hasn't worked, in the combination, we've been able to achieve disease clearance. And I guess the use of injectables, again, limited experience uh, in this era, because it's local therapy, it still works to an extent, but I think our experience of injectables in, in refractory patients is actually very limited currently. And I guess we'll build our experience uh, moving onwards. But I guess this is the time when uh, patients who have limb in transit metastases discussed um, at our MDTs and offered isolated limb infusion. And it's not a pleasant treatment, I have to say. Um, basically, it is insertion of venous and arterial catheters into a limb and then a tourniquet around the upper extent of the limb, so thigh or the upper arm if you're performing isolated limb infusion in the arm, and then infusing chemotherapy through the arterial catheter and uh, taking that uh, infusate out through the venous catheter. And that's we circulate that uh, fluid for about half an hour. So it's done in theatres, general anaesthetic, and admission of about 10 days to two weeks for the patients who undergo this. And the limb uh, following the limb infusion is actually quite uh, edematous, they can get compartment syndrome, but, you know, almost immediately uh, because of uh, the isolated limb infusion, you do get a drying up of the lesions and uh, usually an almost immediate response. So it, it can be used, but um, judiciously, I think. Just to circle back, I think we've hopefully tried to describe the variety of these patients in both the systemic and local therapies. But one thing, Robert, can you tell us a little bit about the natural history of these patients? We, we often, in, in a small set of patients, they end up having all of these treatments. They've mm -hmm. had systemic therapy with me. They've had an injectable or diphencyprone, and, and, and then unfortunately at some point progress onto needing a limb infusion. What's the natural history? Do these patients eventually all develop distant disease or does their disease say local? If um, you look at first presentation of resectable in transit disease, 30% of them don't progress to any other disease. So there is a small group of patients who, uh, I guess, don't require any further treatment, but the majority do. And they progress to nodal disease or stage four disease, but not all of them do. 
If we all had a looking glass for the future, it'd be much easier to work out exactly how to treat these patients and to choose the appropriate treatment at this point. So to summarise our learnings from this, I might talk through a relatively typical case that we see in our MDM. A patient in his early 80s had a history of a stage 2 melanoma and about a year later presented with two pigmented nodules proximal to the primary site on his leg. He saw his dermatologist, and and as the owner summarised quite nicely, the dermatologist did two things. The first confirmed that these were, in fact, uh, in transit metastasis with a biopsy, confirming melanoma, and secondly, appropriately staged the patient to exclude distant disease with a PET scan and an MRI of the brain. At that point in time, we knew the patient had two in transit metastasis, and the surgeon, Robin, in this case, resected them both. And subsequently, they received adjuvant nivolumab from me. This was all relatively straightforward management. But during the adjuvant nivolumab, the patient developed multiple new in-transit metastases, which developed quite rapidly. And this is where I think these patients can get get difficult and really when we need multidisciplinary care. So Robin Diona, this patient was seeing their medical oncologist, and you get a phone call asking for help from the medical oncologist saying, Mr. Smith now has multiple new in-transits. What do we do? Well, as as Robin has said, we're lucky that we're often able to consult patients together to look through the extent of disease, the size of disease to determine for the cutaneous in-transit metastases, what level of therapy do they need? Are they something that could be trialled with diphencyprone or if they are too substantial in their thickness, their their bulk, is it someone who would go straight to limb infusion in this scenario? So if at all possible, we we do try to consider them for diphencyprone, for non-ILI treatments in the first instance, if that's feasible. And it also, of course, depends on the rate of disease progression. And as we alluded to earlier, there's a huge range, not only of clinical presentations, but in the rates of progression of these lesions. And people with more indolent disease, even if it's systemic therapy resistant, more indolent disease, you've got a little bit more time to try less invasive therapies before you move on to the more invasive therapy. So it would be a a combination of considering the rate of disease progression, the volume and thickness of disease, and of course, patient preference and which treatment option will serve them best, reduce their downtime and be something that they're more likely to be able to manage and cope with. And before we wrap up, Robert, any final comments? It's a complex disease. I think that we all struggle with it and um, it really requires multiple heads from different specialties to discuss the best option for the patient. And on that note, I'll close out our podcast. I think Robin's final point really is the most critical. These patients are complicated. It's a heterogeneous group of patients and really they're best served by multidisciplinary care involving uh, a a multidisciplinary team with uh, expertise in melanoma. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Matt, Robin and Diona for that great discussion and sharing your insights with us today. You have been listening to Melanoma Insights for Professionals, brought to you by Melanoma Institute Australia and made possible by unrestricted educational grants from Merck Sharp and Dome Pharmaceuticals, Bristol-Myers Squibb and Novartis. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a colleague or friend and be sure to leave us a review. 
For more practice-changing education, sign up to our Melanoma Education portal at melanomaeducation.org.au. Thanks for listening.